0: Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening to everyone out there, and welcome to episode number 237 of Buddhist Biohacker. I am your host, Lisa Gunshore. Welcome in, and we are here with one of my favorite guests, and I've missed you so much. Satyam, welcome back. Uh,
1: Great to be with you here, Lisa. Great to be here.
0: Yeah. Oh, I miss our talk so much. Yeah. And I was so looking forward to today. And I was really looking forward to the topic for today, which is the Bhagavad Gita. So mm. I'd love for you to take a minute. I know we we are in a new season. We have new viewers that may or may not know who you are. Just take a minute to kind of explain who you are today. And then yeah. let's dive into the topic.
1: Great. Well, my, my name is Satyam. Uh, I've been on the yogic path for a um, For pretty much all my adult life since my early 20s. I'm now in my mid 50s. And it was really not just about practicing on the mat, but incorporating all the elements of yoga into daily life, uh, from diet and dealing and all sorts of stuff. Um, So um, and I spent a number to make that transition. I spent a number of years living in India in various ashrams, and really treat my house kind of uh, as that uh, these days but um, yeah, I um, I love to practice meditation based life and I love all things yoga and the the really the the great extent that yoga really is that it's it's not a physical practice. it's not just meditation but it it touches on all spheres of life and that's uh really what I love to share and and, and this topic allows us to do that. Um, I also run Renaissance yoga and I am right now sitting in North Carolina though. My general domicile is in Maryland.
0: Nice, nice. Mm. Uh, are you near the ocean then where you are right now today? I am
1: in, I'm right down the street from Chapel Hill, or really just on the bounce. So I'm, I'm gotta be an hour or two from the, from the water.
0: Okay, yeah. oh, I'm yeah. dying for some water.
1: Yeah, right. We have right.
0: the beautiful mountains, though. So
1: yeah, yeah, you can't complain. You can't. Complain.
0: <laughs> no, I can't complain in Colorado. That is for sure. Oh my goodness. Well, let's. Where do you want to start with Bhagavad Gita? I mean, maybe we start with what it is, and I'm sure you've yeah. got lots of things to talk about. Sure. So.
1: Let's let's get a very big, wide-angle view here, and we'll slowly hone in on it. So we'll, we'll work like an hourglass. Nice, wide then we'll come right into the essence of it and then we'll go out again into the vast teachings that it has. So it will be an hourglass approach. So let's pull back. Um, In India, there are two great epics. One is known as the Ramayana and the other one is known as the Mahabharata. The Ramayana is Puran. It's It's mythology and it's about King Ram. So two great ethics means two great stories that are told over thousands of years from generation to, generation to generation, to generation, to generation, everyone in India knows this, although it's changing now as India becomes more and more materialistic and those old, uh, you know, everybody's more involved in YouTube and all that. And, uh, you know, all, all the internet culture is what I mean to say, you, you know, um, the, the good and the bad, whatever it may be. Um, And so naturally that starts to break the, chain in that uh, ongoing oral history to the degree that um, the families are no longer living together, so forth, so on. But this did; these two stories were told from uh, th- thousands of years. Uh, and the Ramayan is Puran, it's mythology. And then the other one is the Mahabharata, means the unification of India, the great India. And uh, that is known as educative history, that it's a historical event, but some of the telling of it has gone through quite a bit of liberty. It's just like if you, like if I think back to my childhood and the story is told, and then, you know, a couple decades later, the uncles, the aunts, the nephews, everybody's got their own story, their own rendition of it. And some of the facts become a little bit more um, loose, so to speak. Well, you can imagine what happened to a story that's three thousand five hundred years old. It gets bendy and loses some of its. Um, uh, it became, yes, there are some things that are a little bit fantastical about. But they've done the archaeological digs, and it is an event take place. So then, what am, what are we talking about here? We're talking about two great epics: the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, and then so then what's the Bhagavad Gita? And the Bhagavad Gita. Is a very small chapter in the Mahabharata. It's a small chapter, and so a lot of people, the uh, the the both Western and Eastern scholars alike, uh, have concluded that um, yes, there was an event uh, in India, in uh, in uh, in the state of Haryana, north of Delhi, where this battle was fought and where these people lived. Uh, it was, and. Um, but a lot of people just aren't aware about the Mahabharata and they just they read the Bhagavad Gita and it starts it's like it's like the middle. So like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Mm-hmm. What is this? And um, the Bhagavad Gita means literally uh, song of the divine. Gita means song. Mm-hmm. Bhagwan means divine. So it's the song of the divine and it's happening within uh, it's a, it's a interaction between the two main uh, people in this Mahabharata. So it's, it's with, with this greater, this greater story. And uh, scholars like have, on East and West have concluded that, yes, this was an actual event. And they've also uh, found, this is the longest story ever told, the Mahabharata, Mm -hmm. the the long, it's, I don't know, 22,000 couplets. It's, 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 Enormous! It's, it's enormous. And it, these days they may write it in prose. And like one of the editions I have is 1,100 pages. The Bhagavad Gita is 10 pages in that. It's one mm. percent. So, uh, and it's about 40 percent of the way through. Mm. So, um, so basically, when when in a typical yoga teacher training class, they say, "Let's read the Bhagavad Gita," and it starts out in this field, and these two parties are about to go into battle. And no one knows why there was a battle. Why this is why this was uh, going to occur.
0: Yeah, my question for you right out of the gate is like, why is that? Like, why is it that there's so much emphasis on this small piece?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, a lot of the Mahabharata is like family drama and intrigue. And not a lot about teachings, and almost all the great teachings of the Mahabharata are contained in the Bhagavad Gita. All the philosophical teachings.
0: Wow. Okay. And so
1: uh, it, it, that makes it. Uh, so there's a there's a, a a great interest in it for that for that reason. So basically, in the Mahabharata, in a nutshell, you've got one major fan one major dynasty the kuru dynasty and there's a split in the family over the inheritance of the kingdom there's the pandavas and the karawas and uh, i did a full length course on this full length course means like over the course of five weeks with about 11 sessions and if anyone's interested they can contact me about that but what i what i one one of the things i learned from that is stick to the teachings don't try and recount the tale as much as i'm familiar with the tale and love it 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 just you start telling it and it mushrooms and mushrooms and mushrooms it's a never-ending saga of uh of so many characters so but in a nutshell you've got this family fight. And uh, and then you've got this term of dharma, dharma. And actually, I just did a course on, on the word dharma itself. But dharma, uh, in, in our uh, interest here, is that what is the righteous thing to do? Where does truth lie? And what is my course of action? What action should I take? And in this fight between that's about to unfold between these two families or two, two sides of the family, the Pandavas, Pandava, P-A-N-D-A-V-A, Pandava, Kaurava, K-A-O or K-A-U-R-A-V-A, Kaurava and Pandava and their cousins basically. and the main warrior of one side is named arjun and he's looked upon as the greatest archer of that time and in humanity there are different eras where based on what people honor. And if, if you're good at that, then you get prestige. Now we live in the era of what the yogis would call Vaishan era, capitalism. The people with the most prestige, those with the most money in their pocket or in their bank account or in their stock portfolio, whatever. You have money, you get prestige in the simple. And there were, there's also the Vipran era. Uh, the era of ministers and intellectuals and those who have the most knowledge, they get prestige. And then there's the Kshatriyan era, the warrior era, the best fighters, they got the prestige. This fight took place 3,500 years ago in Delhi during the full blown Kshatriyan era. So those warriors had tremendous prestige, tremendous clout, and Arjun was looked upon as the, one of the most unparalleled archers of the day, a bow and arrow. And so this battle's about to take place and he loses his gumption. Hmm. He sees all his cousins, his uncles, his grandfathers, all his people who he grew up with. And he's like, I don't want to fight this. Now, his charioteer is Krishna. And so he and Krishna had gone out to look upon the, the battlefield. And this is where the Bhagavad Gita starts about 40% of the way through the Mahabharata, there's, there was an injustice done. Arjuna and his brothers are on the side of righteousness. They, they're doing for the welfare of the people. His cousin was devious, Duryodhan, and who wanted to kill them, annihilate them. He made assassination attempts and he cheated the people. He was an, a ne- negative force. So there was a sense that this, this needed to happen. Now, before we go on with fight and war and battle, it's it's a um, you know, it's a really sensitive topic right now because the the teaching the Bhagavad Gita is mount your horns, get your forces, go fight. That that's that's the that's where it ends up. But it isn't fight for fight's sake. That there's there's a there's a reason for it. Uh, and I I also want that numerous, numerous attempts were made not to fight. So if you just read the Bhagavad Gita, it looks like some guy's supposed to fight, he's chicken, the other guy's convincing him to fight, and boom, they go into battle, basically. Uh, But the battle is not part of the Bhagavad Gita, but it's to talk about why the battle is necessary, why we must go fight. So it can uh, read like, uh, uh, you know... um, Yet there's so many spiritual teachings, there, but there, but it's around this notion of fight. And now with the way the world is today, people, you know, um, it, that it's not a, it's not a pretty scene. Fighting is not uh, there's not a lot of glory in it. It's it's unfortunate. It's tragic, and um, we should do everything we can as humanity not to fight. And I want to emphasize that that whole first third of the Mahabharata, or a lot of it, is about how can we avoid war? Mm. How can we avoid? And to that, Arjuna, the main, the main uh, character, and his brothers underwent undue humiliation, un- unending humiliation to avoid fighting. And then they sent Krishna. Krishna went as a peace emissary. So they took so many steps not to fight. But sometimes things come to a head where you've got to stand your ground. And it happens. And um as much as, so that that's what, at the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, the guide for the Pandavas, the, he, he's looked upon as the great yogi of the time. He says, there's no, at this point, we've all options have been exhausted. There's no there's no uh there's no other path unfortunately we've got to stand and that's your dharma as a kshatriya you're a warrior so you've this is your what you were born to do so uh so it's that so that's how that's a, a little bit how it goes and so when they have this talk so i don't want to give the idea that this 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 is like a wartime cry that but every attempt was made not to not to fight but when the battles lined up and the bhagavad-gita is uh the bhagavad-gita is it's all it is is a discussion it's a talk between arjuna and krishna krishna is the guide he's the yogi king he's looked upon as uh, uh as a divine form Divine being, and Arjuna is a great warrior. And Krishna is driving his chariot. He's the charioteer, and Arjuna is the great hero. And but everybody knows that Krishna is uh, is the the divine. It's looked upon as divine, divine being. And he takes Arjuna around to overlook the battlefield, and that's when Arjuna loses his will to fight. And Krishna's like, oh, what's going on? Why are you so queasy?" You know, he starts, and it goes, um, and it's really this discussion where all the spiritual teachings are unfolding, and mm-hmm. and that's really what the Bhagavad Gita is. That someone who's fully trained to go into battle—that's his dharma to do that. He's on the fight of justice. He's not fighting for self-interest, and all these reasons of why he should fight and that there's no option all other options have been exhausted and krishna who's looked upon as the embodiment of dharma of righteousness that just follow his guideline you'll be on the right path is telling him to fight and and this and arjuna arjuna doesn't want to do it mm. and so the bhagavad gita is what krishna convincing arjuna why he should fight and arjuna ultimately regaining his courage and joining the battlefield. So that's all the Bhagavad Gita is, it's a discussion. But within this discussion is some incredible teachings.
0: I can't wait to dive into them. Cause even, yes. even just what you're saying about like, how many of us have a Dharma that we either are afraid to step into or don't want to step into. I mean, that's a conversation in its own and want to throw out to everybody who's watching in the live, you feel free to share, you know, how you relate to the story as we go here and discuss some of these teachings. And also if you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you, but yeah, let's, let's dive into these teachings.
1: Yeah, let's do that. Cause the teachings are really what's meaningful here and -hmm. they apply to today's life. And the first teaching is don't remain in dilemma. Mm. That, um, that as human beings, we can never make every right decision. We're not omniscient. Uh, and, but, but this idea of should I or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't I? It rots the brain. It saps you of all your energy and vigor. And that's what happened to Arjuna. He he totally he can't decide what to do, and uh, and Krishna and 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 as he as he thinks about it and hedges and haws, his he just has become totally weak kneed, and um, and he loses all his psychic force. So and, and as human beings, we always have to decide something, and some of those decisions are not we don't get full clarity on what to do but this hemming and hawing going back and forth where you convince yourself one way, then you convince yourself another, it drains you. It saps you of your energy. Just pick one. If it's the wrong one, you'll figure it out soon enough and you'll get on the right one. If it's the right one, it will become quickly apparent. But, um, so, uh, that's the one thing is don't, the yogis say never remain in dilemma. Dilemma means when the mind is running in two directions, do it's running in two directions. And, um, it makes us uh, a, the most pathetic version of ourselves that we can become, and so take a stance and know that your intentions are good. You may not have the right path, but you'll 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 get it. So don't this hemming and hawing uh, is not to uh, not to not to be. Don't give in to that. Yeah, I
0: remember, and there's a great saying that says, you know not making a decision is really deciding everything's going to remain the same.
1: <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. 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 You, and, and sometimes we know that we have critical, we've got to decide something. We all have it. Whether when we're 10 and, and no matter where we are in life, that that it takes on a, whether you're 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, 60 years old, when we meet those instances, they can become, um, you know, that's really important. To, to the outsider, it doesn't look like a big deal. But when you're in it, it's, you know, a big big deal.
0: Yeah, so, we got a question here from Tracy. She's asking, how does the meaning of the Sri Guru Gita fit in?
1: The meaning of the Sri Guru Gita. Sri in Sanskrit means charming, most charming. Guru Guru is preceptor, one who removes the darkness. And Sri Guru Gita Gita means song. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's looked upon as. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what she's referring to with that question. Sri Guru Gita. Um, uh, it, it may be another text that I'm not familiar with. It may be. I'm not quite sure exactly where. It, I'm not sure what that. What that
0: uh, yeah, what, maybe elaborate, Tracy. And I'm wondering if it's a mantra or something. Yeah, yeah maybe. Okay,
1: yeah um yeah, but so uh so th- so that that's one thing is don't remain in dilemma and take take action the another main teaching is um, a sense of duty hmm. that we all have we're duty bound in this world and that that what we And that we should really explore what is our true purpose on this in this world uh and in today's materialistic uh society where a lot of the aspects of life are based on material gain sometimes we have to say wait a second is this really is this is this my duty here is this is this what i should be bound to is there some higher purpose of why i've why i've come onto this earth and so with a sense of duty, it's uh, it's a big aspect of yoga that you, it's not a question of what you like or don't like. It's what we're bound to do in this world. And in family life, people have that all always comes up. Whether you're raising children, uh, relationships with partners, your commitments or your relationship to the older generation before you, That um, that life is not just choosing from one whim to the next or one liking to the next or one that there's something deeper that we have to hold to and that that builds trust in the society and people will trust you that whether it's raining or shining you're going to do the right thing you're not just going to cop out and run after your own self-interest or your own self-indulgence or your own self joy or pettiness that you are going to hold on to a, a a a discipline and 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 a commitment to something and that's what and that's what uh, Arjuna. Uh, so that's what uh, Krishna is teaching Arjuna. He says, "Hey, you're a shatrier. You're a warrior. Now your time has come. You can't shirk the battle. Everybody's depending on you. You can't wallow in this self pity and misery. That, that, that's you. Know, the, the, you can't do that. You you got to jump in." Mm-hmm. And, uh, so duty that we all have a sense of duty and, um, and that we're. Uh, Oh, it is a prayer that I love singing, chanting. It was taken from some large text. It sounds like a wonderful chant and prayer. And I would say that um, uh, Sri Guru Gita, that oh, oh, the song of the great Guru, all the oh, the song of the divine. Uh, I'm sh- it sounds like it's uh, a beautiful prayer that would be right in line with uh, with the yogi teachings of, um, of uh, that. That, this, that we should uh, uh, commit ourselves to uh, supreme realization. And 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 glorify that which is eternal, yeah. Thank you mm-hmm. for that. That's wonderful. Um, and so and what one thing that's really nice about this sense of duty is that it leads to greater self discovery. It forces us to look in and say, what is my purpose? What am I doing here? Am yeah. I just you know f- following you know the uh, the you know the the party line, or do I have some greater meaning here? And, and that builds, it builds character, integrity, and people think, okay, this person is, can be trusted. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, uh, another one is right to the action, but not to the result. Mm. You have the right. So, um, That Krishna was saying, "Look, you you don't have control over this situation. You're only all you can do is take to the action. You don't have control over what the fruits thereof." Where and this is a big point in today's society, uh, especially in materialism. Uh, people do everything for the fruit, and um, and. Th- the yogi say that the, the results are not in your hand. You should do what is the dharmic action, what is the right thing to do, and then what the results are, that's not for you to choose. That, um, so, uh, so in this particular instance, um, Krishna's saying, "Look, you've got to dive into this. You've got you you're a kshatriya, you're a warrior." You've got to engage in this action. And then whatever happens, that's that's beyond what you're, um, you know, you, you don't have control over the results. And, um, you know, and, and today a lot of people are, you know, it's so easy to pick up a job, not for the job itself, but what you think you'll get from that job. Or, um, and so it's a different perspective. It's a, it's a, that, that you don't know what the, re, what the outcome is going to be. You don't know what the response is going to be. And so you should just go on doing, doing the right course of action. And uh, so, yeah. It, and we, yeah, so it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an inter- different uh, flip-flop approach from a, a lot of, where where you go into a job interview or you go into a uh school, if you do these four years, then you will be in position to. So a lot of it is going after low-hanging fruit and materialism. And in mm-hmm. uh and the yoga perspective is um never do something for the end result. Do do you know you you do the action it, uh, itself. Yeah.
0: That one's hard when you like to plan.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it it it's a big thing. That you're right. You're you're right. And you have to not be attached to what you think your future is supposed to be or going to be, which is a very difficult thing. Everything we've been taught is, and to not have, and the one thing that's freeing about it is you do it, and then there's less disappointment involved. Let's say you're going to give. Uh, a talk or you're going to plan something and it doesn't turn out the way you want it, then all your expectations you're floored because your expectations weren't met and it's very binding actually and it actually can be fear inducing that well if i don't get the result then what well then i won't you or if i don't get my it's well a lot of people i think all of us have felt this at certain things that well the fear of not getting the right outcome that you want to get leads you to maybe not even engaging in the first place. Yeah. You know, that, that's a whole theories of, of expectations. Well, if I'm not, I might not make the team. Well, then I won't go to the tryout. I mean, so you, you got, and, 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 uh, from the yoga perspective, this whole life is about tryout that you, you've got to engage. This whole world is uh, looked upon as, uh, Kulukshetra, the field, uh, the world of, of, of battle. We've come here to to engage. And, and yeah. that's what we have to do. Yeah. 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 So, um, so it's about overcoming uh, expectations uh, and and not being attached to the results. You mm-hmm. do that for the action itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, wh- whereas every corporation... They're just in concern with their bottom line. What hell they do along the way, it doesn't matter. They can justify it by their bottom line. And as we see in capitalism, it's a disastrous approach that um, you, you that a company may do something for their bottom line, for the fruit, but whether they polluted the river or whether they destroyed the forest or whether they put 50,000 people out of work, that's meaningless. They got their stock option. Their, their, and so it's a very much... Um, capitalism is the exact opposite of it or any materialistic approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where everything is done for your result. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another thing is another teaching, I broke it down into six teachings. So one was sense of duty, one was right to the action, not to result. And then the next one is words that people may know about, heard about, karma, jnana, and bhakti. And these are looked upon as the three paths of yoga karma is the path of action gyan is the path of knowledge and bhakti is the path of love or devotion mm-hmm. and, um, and and basically uh, th- th- those guys uh, Arjun way back when he was on the path of karma, a path of, it's looked upon as selfless action. And, uh, and so what is karma yoga? Doing for the welfare of others. Using your physical body, you know, feeding the poor, uh, helping anyone who needs physical help, uh, or taking action for the welfare of others. And then the path of gyan is uh, using your knowledge to help others using your 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 knowledge and and also but those two paths they're valuable but they have to under ultimately they have to come within the path of bhakti so say the yogis because the problem with with action is that you do the path of action and all of a sudden the ego starts saying i did this i did that people should honor me for those actions but 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 well, the teaching is you have the right to the action not to result. It doesn't mean that you should be heralded in the newspapers or be, or made mayor of the township or revered and respected. You did the action for the action itself, not for the result. But the ego, oh, that ego likes to jump in there and says, "Hey, did you see that? Did you see what I just did? Hmm. I, that was, oh, I haven't seen anyone do that as good as I just did it, right? So the ego always wants a little bit of uh, respect. It wants it wants its praise. So it's a tricky... So the yogis say, yes, you have to do karma yoga, you have to do selfless action, but it's not easy to keep it selfless. It's very easy to, to become self-centered by it. That, okay, I'm feeding that person, or I'm helping that person, but I should be honored by other people. Everybody should see. My photo should go in the newspaper. And it's a very difficult thing because the ego is, it's uh, it, it can snatch us. It, it it's uh, it, So the yogis say, do selfless action and learn, knowledge, gyan, follow the path of gyan. But gyan also has its vanity. No one's smart, no one's as smart as I, no one can explain this text as well as I can explain it. Did you see that essay I wrote? Did you? So so, (laughs) so both those two, um, karma and gyan, although they're very important, they're also a pitfall and Mm -hmm. they can lead to ego. the, the, the path of bhakti, they say, is the safest. It's a broad path where you, you're you doing out of love and devotion. And so like, like the mother who breastfeeds the child, she's doing it for love of the child. She never thinks, oh, you're such a good mother. Rather, if someone praises her for breastfeeding a child, she's like, what nonsense is that? When you really love something, when you commit to something, you think that this is the best thing that I should do this, and you're ready to do and die for that um then then the ego won't crop in because you're committed to the welfare of 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 something else, not yourself. It might be an ideal, it might be uh, something that you're your object of ideation. So that cools down the ego. it chills it out and then it and because of that love and commitment, then you will do more work and you'll learn more to help others. so, it's um, so ultimately, we follow all three, and parceling out just karma or just Gyan, uh, they say that's the razor's edge. Very tricky, you mm-hmm. can do it, but most people fall off that cliff. It's very tricky to walk that fine line because human ego is like that,
0: yeah. 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 now those paths can they i mean i assume they can all intermingle right can you work they, they do they do the ocean peace while you're also in the knowledge piece or the action
1: right 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 right. ultimately once once we become fueled by devotion it'll spur you into action and it'll spur you uh to to learn to into knowledge because you'll need that knowledge to uh to pursue yeah so they do they, they do work together and ultimately this uh bhakti has to be under uh the path of bhakti has to be grounded in this sense of of surrender uh, which is like one of the main spiritual teachings that um and you're surrendering your ego you're surrendering your action you're surrendering you're doing for the welfare of others or for uh for um uh, for, for supreme entity uh and so it needs that and and by surrendering the ego then um that's then we can have selfless action, and uh, and that's really what meditation is about. Meditation is your from the yogic perspective. Meditation is jivatman to paramatman, unit mind mm. to cosmic mind, unit soul. So you can't move from small to big until you give up your small. If you think that like. A frog in a well thinks, I'm the king of this well. I'm, I'm you know, that this is, the, I am the king. There's nothing outside this well. And so long as he thinks that there's nothing outside this well and he's the king, he'll never discover the world all. And the world, that well is just one one teeny little piece in this greater greater world. And the unit egos like that, that as long as we become attached to you, we can't explore that whole realm of spirituality and and uh, yeah. So, um, so those are the three paths in a nutshell. Okay, karmagyan and, and uh, bhakti and then this next one is pretty key that uh the, that so so basically not to lose sight of the whole bhagavad-gita um arjun is going on that because he's saying what have i come here for what and a is telling him all these eternal truths and arjun who's really just an archer not a philosopher he becomes more and more involved and he says oh krishna tell me the next step how does one lead a good life how does one become a good person how does one achieve spiritual realization so he comes to this point of well okay i have my dharma but how do i become a good person in this world mm. and and krishna tells him you must have control you must have a disciplined mind the mind should control the body and not the body dragging the mind right when you go when you're driving down the street the mind should be in control of where you're going. And the body should not just start taking you through each and every drive-through because you see the neon signs and you become attracted to those things. Uh, you're not hungry, but the sign says, cherry-filled frosted donuts, and you go through that. <laughs> that uh, you know. So the point is that our 10 motor sensory organs, they should not be our brain, right? Um, they should not do our thinking for us and we should not be because those motor sensory organs will just pull you into the realm of indulgence, and will suffer from disease and um, all sorts of and and all sorts of problems. Right? If we smoke everything that we can get our hands on, if we can drink everything that we get our hands on, if we indulge in all the ten motor sensory, we'll, we'll destroy ourselves. That's what happens. That's the whatever you want to call it, the Hollywood tragedy. Right? They had they had the world. They had everything. they they lost themselves they destroyed themselves
0: um Mm -hmm. and so the yogis
1: say indriya nigraha indriya the ten motor sensory organs have control over those things and they say they use the allegory of the horses of the chariot and charioteer that um in the bhagavad-gita they're they're about to have these they fight from the charioteers and the horses pull and um the analogy is the ten motor sensory organs are the horses Don't let your horses run wild. There should be someone in firm control with the reins holding those horses so they go in the right direction. And similarly, our mind should be in full control of our 10 motor sensory organs. Um, So it should have a disciplined mind. And uh, we shouldn't give way to um, all our proclivities, right? If we get a little bit of people, it doesn't mean you just bop the next guy, next person that knows, that you should have uh, a mind that has control. And, and people recognize that in someone. They'll come talk to that person. They realize that person is leading a disciplined life and they have they seem to have some greater wisdom and they're not just running frivolously after all their, after so many indulgences, they have a sense of equanimity. So that, that's a big one that how from the yoga perspective, how do you become a good person? cultivate the mind make the mind strong don't let the mind become a slave to your physical desires but the mind should be have firm and then then you'll be a very uh benevolent and 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 you're you have a great efficiency you'll be using your body in it's in in a, in a proper manner mm-hmm. so that, um, that's uh the teaching about how to uh, kind of be uh so we went through uh, the point of dilemma, and then sense of duty, uh, and right to the action, not to the results. And then the fourth one was the three paths, uh, karma, jnan, and bhakti. And then so, so this fifth one is how to become a good person that the mind should control our, our, our physical organs and then before going into the sixth and seventh really i have eight of them here six seven eight the main teaching the main overall teaching of this of this uh, bhagavad-gita is that this whole universe is an expression of the one and never lose sight of that. That's the main teaching. Uh, We're going through these five, six, seven, eight teachings little by little, but the main over-encompassing teaching is that this whole cosmos is an expression of one, Hmm. of, of, of consciousness, that it's all embedded. It's all rooted from there. And the easiest thing to see is differences and distinctions And that these crude physical eyes, that person doesn't look like me, that person doesn't think like like me, but we are all rooted in a sense of oneness. And that is, um, and that actually is how, that's how we lead a spiritual life, that we're not disconnected from anyone or anything. If I hurt someone, that that isn't my greatness, and that isn't my revenge, or that isn't my self-satisfaction, look, I got that guy know that that was a part of what i'm also trying to become and mm-hmm. so that there's no victory in that so sometimes we may it may be unavoidable and you may have to do something but it should never be out of your own spite or your own selfish and that's where it becomes tricky that that's why that's why arjun had so much trouble he had to fight this fight that was dharma but he's like i don't want to do that to those people and yeah in full sympathy he's, he's but sometimes it, it uh it, it, you have to step in but the whole so arjun when he's he's thinking i don't want to fight i can't do this and krishna's saying what this is all expression of the one you're not the. you're just doing your duty you're not Ultimately, killing or hurting or harming—if you're doing it with the right, if you're doing it out benevolence, and you're just a player in this grand drama—you have to do that. And and Arjuna is like, no, I don't get that. That's not work. That's not working for me. I don't understand that. And so this, so Krishna, what he does, he unreals his Vishvarupa or universal form, and he puts Arjuna's mind in the state of samadhi where he only sees oneness. And his mind becomes cons- suffused in that. And, and that ultimately that happens in meditation. That when, when the mind loses its ego, it will swim in that vast pool of consciousness. And that's what the yogis say is bliss. And so um, our, uh, Krishna, Krishna imparted that realization to Arjuna, where he realized that, look, we're all part of this never-ending cycle of birth and death and birth and death until you um, pull out of this cycle and so um, so when you realize that oneness and you act for the welfare of that oneness then uh, th- then then you can act in these difficult situations so um, mm-hmm. so that's the greater teaching in, in of, of is that we're walking around in this world that looks like multiplicities, but it's really unicity. It's 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 all parts of the same greater uh, uh, expression.
0: Yeah, and it, it aligns, obviously, with the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan teachings as well about a and compassion and interdependent reality. You know, we're all one. We're all right. interconnected. And it is amazing. Once you do have that realization and you can hold... That oneness, that unity, consciousness, compassion does come very easily. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everything
1: becomes much easier. You'll you'll feel like you'll you'll feel at home in each and every situation. You won't feel that anyone's a foreigner. You're someone different. There's a greater connection. It's it's great for the mind. It's and and uh, and at the same time, it's the easiest thing to forget because we all have frustrations. We all we're all battling different. you know, our own deficits, when we uh, are anger or fears or different things. But so that's why we have to meditate every day to try and strive for that. And this is also related with me- uh, this teaching of fruit to the right to the action, not to the fruit thereof. We should meditate and we don't have control over the fruits. We won't say, okay, you know, I didn't feel peace today in my meditation. I'm not doing it again. No, 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 no. Always we have to sit and we have the duty to sit in meditation to try and focus that mind and then sometimes meditation' is good, sometimes meditation bad, but it doesn't matter. Our job, our Dharma is to sit and do the meditation and then what we what realization we get that's that will come in due course or it may come that day. Um, so um, but so we have always have to our, we're duty bound to sit in meditation because that is what holds us on to the idea that yes, we're part of a greater oneness. Yeah, and then living in that, living with that way, it's much easier to live in this world where you feel connected than you feel like one disparate entity. You know, mm-hmm. it, when you feel disparate, it leads to alienation, it leads to depression, it leads to uh, neediness. All sorts of uh, um, uh, people become cowardly, and when you feel connected, you're riveted in, and you 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 want to do for the welfare of others and so, and we've all gone through periods like that. And it's just an, that's human life, right? The ongoing striving to be, for us to be at our best where we feel connected and we can uh, share our, our inherent gifts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, a few more. Th- uh, then this one. So, what is life and death? That's another big thing from the Bhagavad Gita. The mm-hmm. teachings are uh, uh, that death is nothing to be fearful of and that you should not run from the battlefield, whatever that battlefield may be. Um, and, and sometimes we in life, we don't want to do something for fear of the result. And that's a form of death right there, uh, of not willing to face the reality. The, but the yogis say um, you know, that this life is when you go to bed, you go to bed at night, and then in the morning, you put on new clothes and you go after it again. And you get all soiled and dirty, 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 dirty. And you do your best. And then again, you run out of energy and you go back to you go you go to sleep. And then again, you put on fresh clothes and you go after it. They say that's what what one life to the next. You do your best with this body, and then when it wears out, go get another, you'll get another one, and you, again you do your best. So from the yogic perspective, until one gets supreme realization, you're just trying to elevate your mind more and more and from life to life, you get the body that you need to do the work that you. So there's nothing uh, in that sense. Death is just it's just one more uh, part of a chain link fence. It's not the finality. You're just moving on in your journey. But because you can't make the link, people think it's scary. Like right now, I'm living with my mom, I'm helping my mom out. So And she loves to talk about when I was two years old <laughs> and or when I was a baby, an infant. And she relives that all the time. She's like, oh, that was so beautiful. And that baby doesn't exist anymore. She cannot cuddle that baby in that state anymore. But she doesn't mourn the loss of that baby because she sees me and she says, oh, she can connect from that baby to adolescence, to young adulthood, to now we and me with this gray beard. So she so she doesn't think, okay, the baby's gone. But true speaking, the baby, the baby is gone. She can't cradle baby no no can't do that it doesn't work but because she can track that link to link to link to link link she's not in despair about it but where humans can't track that link is when we the expiration of the physical body mind goes on mm-hmm. but the expir- so then that's when all the morning comes the morning m-o-u you know that people that because the link is lost the yogi said that as the mind will develop we'll be able to follow that link from one life to the next but we're not there at that point. So all of a sudden, the physical body's gone. People are like, holy smoke. Fred was here today. He's gone. And it's like, and so death can be, uh, rip, I mean, even people who, uh, mafia men or people who just filled their pockets with, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And at the death on death's door, they're just like a, a drenched cat. They're weak and, and totally lost their vigor. They were bossing people around their whole life, and now they read up to death. And so they're not strong people. And so part of what we need to know of part of the path of yoga is making the unknown known. And that's what happens in meditation. And death becomes a much more natural, you know, you just move into, And but we should never do that prematurely. We should live and uh, as long as we can, maintain our physical body and do all fulfill our dharma. And when death comes, we don't know when and when, but then we embrace it. But it it, it frees us from that. It's kind of like that. I'm not going to try out for the team because I'm scared that I may not. It's that sense of anticipation or or a sense of of uh, 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 of what might happen, of being scared. Where where like we become a deer in the headlights and we don't do anything and and as we eliminate those things fear of the unknown is the greatest fear that's that's if you that's if you really want to scare someone make them scared of the unknown because then in their own mind they'll blow that up into something gargantuan. and so the greatest unknown is death and if that becomes kind of a known entity or something that you're at peace with while you're living oh that's a tremendously freeing thing then you you go on with your life and and uh you're not bound by that uh that that menacing dark cloud. Um and so in yoga there's three things that you talk about all the time digestion, defecation, and death. I call them the three Ds. That whenever I was living in Yoga Ashram, uh, we always end up talking about those three things. Uh, because the elimination of the waste of the physical body—if you don't do that every day—you're going to become diseased. And digestion—if if, uh, if the—if you're not having proper digestion, the mind can't concentrate. And death—if you don't—if—if uh, if you don't know that death is going to come to you, then you won't take action that day. You don't have infinite time. You should think that any day you can be yanked from this world. So the yogi is like, "Hey, you, what do you think you're coming? You're going to sit on? You don't have time. Your your time is limited. You don't know when it's going to end." So all those three things um, spur one into a right way of living and right way of acting. And, and, and it gives you a sense of courage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So death and you and look about like something very, very natural. And, and that doesn't mean that, uh, that you don't console those when people are grieving. I mean, there's a great sentiment involved and you, you, know, you wanna help them and, and support that. But, um, but yeah, so that's one of the things that if you're free of that, then, then uh, it's, it's helpful. Um, and then um, service uh, how to serve um, how to serve uh, this one of the teachings of how to serve this universe that we can do we can do service in three realms Uh, so physical, psychic and spiritual and with our physical body we can serve all our brothers and sisters around us that's what we're supposed to do with our physical body help. And our psychic body, we can serve by educating others and also uh, chanting, spiritual practice, psychic, psycho-spiritual domain, making our minds vast. And and then ultimately in spiritual services uh, um, is uh, sadhana, that uh, we can serve others and, to, and carrying out... Um, that shedding our minds of our unit agenda, right? Mind, like what you were saying before, planning. <laughs> As human beings, we love to plan, plan, plan. And usually, typically, we plan those things that we think we'll like. <laughs> but that may not <laughs> what's best for us, you know? you know? You ask a kid, what should we have for dinner? Well, we'll start off with licorice, then we'll have frozen ice cream, and then we'll conclude with butterscotch. And it's like, you can't survive on that type of diet, do- you know, that you have that for dinner. Well, okay, once as a child, you do it once but But a lot of our plannings, especially in materialism, are plannings for indulgence or plannings for um, what we think would be fun. Uh, but but we don't plan what's dharmic. And so yogi say, you do what's dharmic in this world. And by doing what's dharmic, we're able to do service in those in those realms. Um, so uh, so th- those are uh, some of the teachings in a nutshell. And, It's really a different way of looking at the world, Um, at least from uh, at this point. A lot of us who are living on the planet have grown up under the, you know, materialism. Either people grew up in communism, which is which is a materialist approach, or capitalism, or and um, and now we seem to be morphing. We're trying, we're figuring it out that a little bit, uh, and there's growing pains in that. Um, But it's definitely a different way of looking looking at the world, and And materialism means putting value in inanimate objects. Right? Um, If someone's a spiritual minded person, it doesn't mean that they can't, that you have to walk around in tree bark, or that you don't have a car, or that you don't have a laptop. It just means putting those things in perspective. Um, and materialism means you we're basically giving honor to those who have the most amount of matter the biggest swimming pool the shiniest rolls royce the largest uh, mansion and and yogis say that we're not physical beings we're not uh we're psychic beings we're psycho spiritual beings and we should honor that aspect that that aspect of the human of the personality should be honored our psychic strength our psycho spiritual strength you know those qualities of that that engender what you were saying, Lisa, you know, com- uh, where love and compassion and forgiveness and those types of qualities become, uh, more, uh, really at our fingertips, part of our, our normal way, a part of our human personality, uh, very natural in a natural way. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, but it, you know, it's a different, that's not the messages that we get, you know, I, Growing up, one of the bumper stickers I saw around my high school is "Whoever dies with the most toys wins." Right? (laughs) What 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 can be more materialistic than that?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's
1: a different outlook, and um, and what those and India those days that was because it was not because it was India or not because it was a particular, but because yogis were um, were guiding the society at that point and now india um you know they it's not like that really they're they're becoming more and more materialistic each day and kind of moving more in i just in, in terms of general trend everybody has their own path I, I recognize that but but um and i think in the west people are starting to maybe question um this uh you know the value of uh material they say okay i got everything now what <laughs> it didn't solve my problems, you know. So we're seeing this nice blending and merging, and um, wheres East, uh, East meets West, and uh, but it, but those uh, it's a different outlook than what was what the prevailing outlook is at least in the West. You know?
0: Yeah. 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 Wow, this is so much great information. I And I will put um, timestamps in the show notes for everybody. So um, for each of these different pieces, I've been taking notes as we've been talking, so, I am, so that um, you can go back and listen and listen to these different teachings. And um, I'm really glad you went through all these different teachings. I think it brings um, new light to what the Bhagavad Gita really means and, and why anyone should pay attention to it really i mean these are important teachings
1: yeah and also that to show that yoga is not just the pose that you do on the mat that yoga is it's vast it touches all aspects of our life our whole mentality our whole psychology and that um and that the these teachings are the the bhagavad-gita and really can also be looked at just as an allegory to jump into greater spiritual thought and um so yeah the, the teachings of yoga are vast it's a vast universe of thought and um, yeah always uh, fun to share and oh great to be talk to you about this
0: yes it's so nice to have you back on the show and it's so nice to be back on the show all of us and mm-hmm. um, I missed you so much and take a quick minute before we close just to share how folks can find you and connect in with you
1: oh sure thanks so much yeah Renaissance yoga is is uh, but r-e-n-y-o-g-a ren yoga ren yoga um uh, is my website renyoga.com you can also ren yoga at gmail if you want to email me um and uh, i'm on instagram under renaissance yoga uh so you can find me lots of different ways and for those who are interested in pursuing more about the bhagavad gita and want to take that long class i have it's all recorded and anyone can jump in and uh, i'll be glad to uh Mention this class and you get a special deal. Mention, this, uh, li- mention uh, Brutus Biohacker and, and Lisa and you get a special deal.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Satyan. This has been wonderful as always. And um, like I said, I'll get all of the timestamps up in the show notes and up on the podcast blog. So you guys can look for that to come out later um, today or tomorrow. And again, we're back every Thursday at noon. Next week, we'll be back with Deanna Hansen talking about fascia is consciousness. We love Deanna also. Um, she is the founder of Black Therapy. So, really excited about that. And um, for those of you who are going to be part of Bio Transformation Labs on Saturday, we are going to be talking about mold on Saturday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. It's a free class, so you can just go on to my website, buddhistbiohacker.com. Again, Satyam, I love you so much, and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks Bye. So